Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using the science. You make it sound creepy. It's not. It's so much fun. (laughs) I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today, Jacob will bring us something creative in popping culture. Actually, then, actually, it is creative this week. I, I think you're going to appreciate. I, I nailed appreciate this. I nailed the adjective. That's fantastic. Then, in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article: "Romantic Alternative Monitoring Increases Ahead of Infidelity and Breakup." Interesting. Romantic alternative monitoring. I'm very fascinated to hear what that's all about. And then, in good or bad advice, we are going to discuss some advice from a article titled what to do when people judge your parenting but before we get to all of that goodness if you have some advice you'd like to talk to us about send it to us you can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.tweet us facebook us instagram us at attachedpodcast or just go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message there also we are on YouTube. So like and subscribe on YouTube or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Do it there. But like I said, before we get to all that, how are you guys doing? We're doing pretty good out here in Iowa. It's now, I mean, I feel like it's double hibernation time. It's winter and it's COVID. So Uh we literally go nowhere, right? Like typically in the winter, people don't venture out too much because we've yet to have a day in 2021 that is above freezing. So, you know, yikes. But one thing that I thought was really interesting this week, I got an email from Google. Oh, so because I have the company, the the company, company, the Google, they, so like I do location sharing on Google. So they track my whereabouts and they gave me a summary of my 2020 travels, which was crazy. Like, so it actually shows you how much time in January and February of last year, I spent at like restaurants and shopping. And then all of a sudden it just goes, And it's like flat for the rest of the year with almost nothing. But then it tells you like how many miles you drove, like the cities and parks you visited, which is really cool because it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That was cool to see. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. But also they know exactly where I'm going <laughs> they know all everything. the time and know my patterns about me. And so like it was kind of creepy. It was like yeah. this juxtaposition of like, do I want to do this anymore? Maybe not. <laughs> or is this really cool to remember, like have a log of all the places I've been and what happened? And I don't know, but some people was, just call that journaling. So you could always just. Journal. Yeah. But if you know anything about me, Patricia, is that I love to go with the least amount of effort. So like if Google can journal for me, just track it. No, yeah, I mean, that's it'll fair. be like, like I can just share that with my posterity and be like, here, you want to find out about me? Just, just look at the Google. Plus, if you ever get lost and we we can't find you, we can just ask Google, hey, where would Jacob be about this time of Jacob? day? I also, where, where would we love, Jacob? I also love that Jacob res- referenced his posterity. I think out of the three of us, Jacob is the only one that just assumes after he passes, people are going to be 
so interested in his life. <laughs> Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No. I mean, the humility I radiate Half is down. just so, so overwhelming. Everything that's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, preserved for generations. Thanks, Google. Yep. In generations, people will be wanting to know what Jacob Priest <laughs> did on March 30th, 2020. Got it. I mean, <laughs> that might be an important piece of information. You never it, know. No, it won't be. <laughs> I mean, we're fine. It's good. But I love that you assume that. It's it's a level confidence that one day maybe I'll get to. Something to strive for, you know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Woods. <laughs> What you got? We have lately been enjoying the winning streak of the Buffalo Bills. Oh, we are yeah. big Bills fans, which I <laughs> maybe uh, basketball. <laughs> nope. Oh, baseball. <laughs> it's football. Football. Right. Yeah. So um, we are from that area and have been fans for a long time. But if you're somebody who follows football, you know that it's a lot of seasons, decades of seasons, marked by heartbreak, and not this one. Oh. So we're playoff game since 1995, right? Sure. That's right. <laughs> they haven't like been. Fans. <laughs> oh, oh, Jesse's going to listen. He's going to be so disappointed. I don't think they've been AFC East champions since then. That might be the statistic you're referring to. Okay. Because I believe they were in the playoffs last year. I mean, he's going to believe you. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Well, you know, this is the segment I've I've confided before. This is a segment that makes me the most anxious. This doesn't help. <laughs> I mean, I have one hobby. It's tied to my husband. It lasts for a few months. This year is actually going well. And by the time this airs, I imagine we will be just a few days away from their winning performance in the Super Bowl. And okay, so, you heard it here that. first. Sarah Woods Ladies with the Ladies and gentlemen. You heard nothing else of substance. But... <laughs> You heard that. Thanks, guys. I didn't know we were like a sports podcast these days. Really uh, great insight from Sarah Woods. Sure. I didn't know that you had any hobbies is what I heard you just say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's cool. Oh, I love you both so much. Well, go, go Buffalo Bills. Go team. Woohoo. So, you know, similarly to Jacob and, and, and Sarah, COVID has wiped out the, the vast majority of my social activities and outings. But then I realized what I'm about to say is probably something that I would have said last year at the same time. So here we go. I rediscovered my sourdough starter. <laughs> I knew, I knew it. I knew that's where we were headed. You rediscovered. I rediscovered it. It was in the back of the refrigerator. I was very concerned that I had killed it. My husband said, can you kill yeast? Hasn't it been around like before the dinosaurs? And I'm like, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> science? Yeah. That's yeah. not our kind of, that's not our range <laughs> of science. Anyway, I did not kill it. And I am very, very happy to report that I made this amazing sourdough, what I'm calling breakfast bread okay. that had dried apricots and dates and pecans in it, all mixed in with a little bit of oat flour and some chia seed. It was fantastic i'm going to make some more today so i can have it all next week just mm. a little bit i was really really surprised that it was fantastic i used recipe from you know the world wide web and then just added stuff to it because that's always successful in baking but it actually turned out well this time so 
that's really exciting you guys rediscovering my sourdough that's what i did this week <laughs> just, I, i'm the same person i haven't changed any like that's all i do <laughs> no it's fine it's fine i'm proud of it i'm proud of it yeah it's seasonal there's seasonal interests. Yeah. there you go First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what creative thing do you have for us this week? Well, it's creative in that we are going to compare and contrast two reality television shows. Oh, Yay! The first one, Patricia has watched Indian Matchmaker on Netflix. Oh, yes. I did watch that one. Right? So if you think about that premise, this is about people who are are either Indian American or who are Indian in India and are enlisting the help of a matchmaker to find their match. Seema from Mumbai is the well-known matchmaker who all of these parents approach they give them special, what they call biodata, which has a picture, the education, the employment, all this information about It's like them. a resume. It's a resume yeah. of the person they're going to date. Uh-huh. And then the, the family works together to decide which ones they're going to meet. They set up some meets and you get to watch how these dates go and if they go well or if they don't. The other one is also on Netflix currently, but it's a throwback. You can see that in in the winter in Iowa, we don't do much but watch television. It's called Are You the One? And it originally aired on MTV. And in this show, what happens is, I think it's like 20 singles all come to this house. And supposedly experts have decided that there is a perfect soulmate match in the house for this person so over the course of 10 weeks they actually have to go and through trial and error try to figure out who their perfect match is and if they everybody gets their perfect match in the end they all get ten thousand dollars and everybody goes home happy because they found the love of their life and they got ten thousand dollars wow so what is really interesting is to see the different emphasis that these two cultures have when it comes oh. to finding a mate right so if you think about are you the one it is very western american there is a soulmate and they will have this strong emotional connection right and science can tell me exactly who should, that should be and we're gonna find this and we're gonna be the one and we're gonna love each other forever Though, actually, we covered a paper in the very beginning of this season that would debunk that, right? That's what I was going to circle back to, right? You can circle back to. Spoiler. Come on, Patricia. Spoiler (laughs) my thought process. (laughs) And then you have this other emphasis where when you talk about marriage, the idea is bringing two families that are compatible together. Yeah. Not only are you going to like this person and this person be happy, are the families going to be able to be happy? And can you accommodate these differences that you're going to experience with this partner? It was really interesting watching both of these to see the different expectations, the different conversations, the intentionality, right? The, of the questions that people would ask. On the one hand, and are you the one? Or like, so 
do I feel like my best self around this person? Do I feel, you know, engaged, creative? Do we have similar interests and do we want to do all these same things? And do I like, like this person above all these other options that are presented to me? And on the other hand, it was, okay, does this person, could this person be successful in their career? Would they get along with my parents? Right. Do they share my similar religious background? Am I attracted to them in their picture? Because if I'm not, I'm not going to want to meet them. And I think that there could be good and bad things in both approaches. I don't think you should probably want to set yourself up to think that there's just one and only person out there that science, as Patricia said, told you could be perfect for you because we, the science isn't there yet. And I don't know if it ever will be there because relationship systems have a lot of things that are very hard to measure and predict whether they'll not, they'll, whether or not they will be compatible. But I do think that what I appreciated about the Indian matchmaking show compared to Are You the One is this emphasis on this understanding that there is an interconnectedness when yes. a marriage forms, right? That even though maybe we don't really consult our parents about who should we should date, especially in the United States and in, in our cultural ethos of what dating should be. We don't consult our parents or don't think about families or don't expect to meet the parents on the first or second well, date. Right. I think that this idea of understanding that there needs to be... Or the parents meet each other. Yeah. Right. And the, the Indian matchmaker, one of the first dates is that the families are actually meeting in some of them. Right. Because this idea of bringing families together through marriage, you know, I think historically has some bad connotations of like, right. okay, we're going to bring this through to secure property and women were often treated like that. But I think now it can be seen as building a community of people that will support this union. Right. And that's different than finding your one and only, right? If you're one and only, then it's like, well, I don't need anybody else. And that's a right. really insecure, unstable place to be. But if we have the love and support of a community of people who want this marriage to be successful, this union to be successful, and if we have the understanding coming into it that any good partner, you're going to have to shift, compromise, accommodate to those things and grow with, I think that is a more successful baseline of understanding to form a relationship. A long-term committed relationship for exactly. sure. The longevity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because like the MTV one, they have a follow-up one of nobody's together still. They had a <laughs> lot of fun. They hooked up for a couple of weeks and it was done. Right. Did anybody in the, in the Indian matchmaker and in the follow-up, were they together? So that's actually too. So spoiler alert, because it doesn't actually say, because you don't see the ending of it, but I looked at an article from the LA times and none of the people were dating still the people that were that they showed throughout the season. So it doesn't mean that just because the families are involved, it's, it seems like a good match that it's right. going to work out. But I do think that having more of a interconnected, there's not one perfect person approach to finding a long-term committed partner is a better avenue. Yeah. And also both a lot of fun to watch for various reasons. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. All right. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Romantic Alternative Monitoring Increases Ahead of Infidelity and Breakup, written by Drs. Lane Ritchie, Scott Stanley, Galena Rhodes, and Howard Markman at the University of Denver. 
recently published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. This, this paper describes the results of a longitudinal study investigating people keeping tabs on possible alternative romantic partners and the impact that this has on their current romantic relationships. Prior research has suggested for many years that being aware of and thinking about alternative relationships or alternative relationship partners is a sign of low relationship commitment. And this alternative monitoring, quote unquote, has been associated with lower relationship quality. There have even been studies exploring whether alternative monitoring may be tied to infidelity, though these authors suggest that these that those studies have been limited by the nature of how they studied this connection. They also suggest links between thinking about alternative romantic partners and infidelity may be bi-directional. Infidelity may increase the person's awareness of alternative partners and more monitoring may increase the likelihood of infidelity. There's also some research that suggests alternative monitoring may be associated with breakup. Whether breakup happens as well as the timing of the ending of a relationship. This paper describes the author's work to test these associations between alternative monitoring, infidelity, and breakup over time. Sarah, this is very fascinating. It reminds me of some of my relationships in my early 20s. Yeah. <laughs> it, it quickly got personal. It quickly got personal whatever. Can you enlighten me a bit about how they did that? You know, how they reminded me about my relationships in my early twenties. No, just kidding. No. (laughs) How the study, the science. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, we're hoping listeners also experience these academic deep dives as personal and reflect (laughs) on their own lives. So you're just doing a good job modeling that, Patricia. You're welcome. (laughs) So these authors looked at new instances of infidelity and new breakups in the relationships that they explored, which I think is really important to think about. And they compared the linear trajectories, the alternative monitoring over time. Okay. So they multiple time points. They Multiple time points Mm -hmm. between those who remained together without participating Mm. in infidelity, those who broke up also without experiencing infidelity and couples who reported infidelity. Uh, I said couples to be clear, their sample was unmarried individuals, 779 unmarried individuals between the ages of 18 and 34, uh, 65% women, 78% white. And these individuals, these participants were in serious, exclusive, different sex romantic relationships for two months or more. That was like the baseline to participate in this larger relationship development study that these authors have conducted. And the data is from 07 to 2012. So just to be clear, these are individuals. It's not like both partners. That's right. That's right. Yep. So they're reporting on their relationship across the the time period of this study. They are not getting data from both partners in any of these relationships. So, but these unmarried participants who are in these committed relationships remained in those relationships for at least three waves of data collection so that they had some timeline on all of these 779 participants that was more than just like a singular time point. Okay. The average relationship length was almost three years uh, oh, when wow. they participated. Yeah. I mean, 1834, you're going to capture a range of relationship experiences. Developmentally, you're capturing, you're yeah. capturing enough years there where you're going to get some variation. 
They excluded participants who reported infidelity occurring in that relationship at baseline, which makes sense if they want to look at new infidelity. Oh, yes. So out of that whole larger project that excluded 229 participants, and they excluded reports following marriage if those participants ended up marrying their partner because their focus was unmarried relationships. So I think that's important to think about since this is really the findings would technically then kind of only maybe generalized to unmarried samples, but interesting to think about whether any of what they looked at, yeah, would also kind of occur in married couples, I think. They recruited these participants via calling center and they were sent a paper survey to complete every four to six months. So they, in this study, included eight waves of data collection over approximately a four year span. Yeah, it's really interesting. So alternative monitoring is this idea that two of these authors had come up with many years ago. And the way they measured it in this project was through two questions. I think a lot about what it would be like to be married to or dating someone other than my partner, which if I answer high on that item is going to be right. It's high levels of monitoring my alternatives. Yeah. And it's interesting that they put the phrase a lot in there because it's Mm -hmm. so subjective as to what that Mm -hmm. means. And then their other item is, I am not seriously attracted to anyone other than my partner. Oh, so the reverse of that, basically. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they defined infidelity as sexual relations with someone else since they began seriously dating their current partner. Mm. And they used what we've talked about before on this podcast, multi-level modeling. So when you have all of these time points, what they're doing is looking at how within each individual participant, how these reports of thinking about possible alternatives to my current partner changes over time. Mm-hmm. So what they found was that in their whole sample, breakup occurred in 19% for 19% of their participants, infidelity for 23% of their participants, 58% reported having experienced neither. So more people experienced infidelity than breakup. And we know that in the breakup group, there was they reported no infidelity, just breakup. But in the infidelity right. group, it was infidelity and possibly breakup too, is how they classified that. Is that correct? So they included all reports on alternative monitoring up until either of those occurrences. Okay. So if they reported infidelity, regardless of whether they later broke broke up, up, that's when they ended their assessment. All reports up until the infidelity. If they reported breakup and not infidelity leading up to it, then they were in that other group, that breakup group without infidelity. And the remainder of the participants were all of those who reported neither infidelity or breakup. So all of their reports, other than the final two time points, just in case there was some change occurring, then they couldn't kind of see whether there was an outcome. So what they found was that alternative monitoring was higher for those who eventually broke up than those who stayed together. Okay. Which makes Makes sense. sense. Yeah. Right. That's what, that's what they're, that's what they hypothesized. And that's what they found. They didn't find significant growth of monitoring right before a breakup compared to people who stayed together. It looked like maybe it was trending in that direction, but they, they didn't find something that we would consider to be statistically significant. But that was another thing that they hypothesized that maybe immediately before a breakup in those kind of time points, right before a separation, alternative monitoring might significantly increase. I'm thinking about alternatives more before I separate. So really it was just on average across time, those people 
tended to have higher alternative monitoring. So it might not be yes. just before breakup. It might be a continuous That's right. Thing. Okay. That's right. And then second, in terms of infidelity, they found that alternative monitoring was also higher for those who eventually went on to report infidelity compared to those who stayed together without infidelity. In this group, they did find that that monitoring increased significantly more steeply for those who oh. reported infidelity compared to the change in monitoring over time for those who stayed together okay. without, which is really interesting in terms of how they've tied these behaviors together over time. They did also do some exploratory analyses to see if participants who thought that their partner might be engaged in infidelity might show any different patterns, right? If I think my partner's cheating, do I start surveying the field? Do I start thinking about alternative? Am I more likely to ramp up and then engage in infidelity? But that's not, they didn't find that they had any different patterns in terms of whether they thought their partner was cheating, which is interesting. And stable relationships, those that didn't break up and those that did not experience infidelity, actually on average, their alternative monitoring declined slightly through the study period, which was just a caveat kind of that they shared later, but I thought was interesting. I think this project is limited by the fact that it's, it's not dyadic. They have only one report from one person. I think it's would be really fascinating to see how this operates in couples, how one person's monitoring of the field might mimic or not their partner's kind of similar thought process. And they didn't compare breakup without infidelity to infidelity. They didn't compare those two groups, which I found myself kind of curious about how they may or may not have differed. The averages were highest for people who experienced infidelity at baseline and at the final time point, but they didn't compare those groups. So I'm not able to say whether that was Um, significantly different. And I just found myself really curious about whether those groups look different. I think it's also a little bit limited by infidelity only being defined as sexual relationships. They're not kind of capturing any other behaviors that many couples might say would constitute being unfaithful. And that's only an unmarried sample. So they dropped participants' data once they got married. And I think it's interesting to think about, do we potentially think about alternate partners more or differently when we're wondering about, is this the person I want to spend the rest of my life with? And how does that continue to evolve after that kind of public commitment? Right. Yeah. So people who stay in and remain in a committed relationship in this study experienced a decline in alternative monitoring. Mm -hmm. We're not really sure if that is a precursor to marriage Mm -hmm. or if that group is just qualitatively different than people who do choose to get married. Yep. Right, exactly. So I think an important takeaway is that this is a process they're assessing about leaving a door open, not judging what's on the other side of the door. So this is different from thinking about the quality of one's alternatives. It's just about considering oh. them at all. The, are there alternatives? The de- right. Are there alternatives? It's the degree to which I might be potentially interested in or aware of possible partners other than the partner I have right now. Interesting. So, which I think is an, in- which is different, right? If I, if that's partnered with, I not only am monitoring and I think there are some high quality possibilities, mm-hmm. might we see kind of differences in how those relationship trajectories happen too. I think the other takeaway is here that if you're a looking, you might be a liking, you might be kind of, <laughs> you know, as, as if they say, looking, you, might be a you might just kind of be headed for out that door, ready to yeah. kind of move on. And so, I mean, the alternative monitoring was higher for couples who broke up, higher for those engaged in infidelity and those increases preceded those behaviors. So right. is it 
is it possible that it could be helpful to pay attention to when this is occurring in your relationship? And if it's tied to times when either you feel really vulnerable or your relationship is really vulnerable, going through a lot of other kinds of stressors as well, is that an indicator that might be time to ask for help to avoid worse relationship outcomes if your goal is to stay together? Right. Or a self-awareness piece. If I'm noticing this before I you know, engage in infidelity, it might be important to be self-aware, have a conversation and maybe break that relationship up and move on to another one rather than engaging in infidelity. Yes. Because we've talked about other research on this podcast about how people will kind of at times languish in these relationships Mm -hmm. where they know that potentially they're headed towards a breakup. They would prefer to end it or dissolve it, but they kind of stay there for much longer than they should otherwise. And so this might just be another factor where if you're monitoring the field or thinking about there might be other people I could be with, is that a time where you should slow down, take stock in your relationship and either ask for help if you want to stay together Mm -hmm. or need some extra support versus make some concrete decisions about it's time to exit. Right. I, I wanted to say too, I think an important caveat here is being explicit about the boundaries of the relationship, right? So we know that people who have open relationships don't necessarily have bad relationships, right? Mm. They're not at any greater risk of breakup or lower romantic relationship quality than people who don't have open relationships. I think the key process here is, am I thinking about violating or wanting to go beyond the boundaries of what has been established in my relationship. So this isn't to say that people who are necessarily monitoring alternatives are going to break up because if having alternatives, at least sexual relationships, is an okay process for your relationship, then I don't don't think that you necessarily be at greater risk, right? I think the key here is understanding that infidelity is a boundary violation. It is something that you are not disclosing that is Mm -hmm. potentially secretive. And that is where I think the damage comes in, not necessarily just the act of sex itself. Really important. Thanks. Woo-hoo! Boo! Woo-hoo! Yeah! Finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, numerous top 10 lists, and so on and so forth. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if this advice is good or bad. Can this advice also be ugly? Because in the beginning, we always say good, bad, or ugly advice. I wonder if that's another Mm -hmm. category where it's just like, this is good advice, but it's ugly advice. Toxic. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's phrased so poorly that (laughs) (laughs) I'd be interested. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how you would use that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it, Jacob. All right. If I ever think of advice as ugly, I will definitely share. All right. Perfect. (laughs) If you have heard or seen any advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on all of the social medias at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. We love to get messages. While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And as always, share it with your loved ones because they also need to hear this. I'm sure they want to. Of course they do. If they're not, I mean, honestly, honestly, how could they not? It's good advice. 
That is good advice. Winner. And if you watch us on YouTube, you'll see how pretty this advice is as well. Oh, yeah. Because we're beautiful people. Yeah, inside and out. <laughs> Dirty. So this week, I was sent an article about a single mother's experience through Facebook. With it came a note that this specific article caused a lot of controversy in a chat group with people judging the single mother. I read the article. It was about a young single mother of four who had just left her abusive husband. It's titled Single Mother of Four Asks for Silent Judging to end for mothers like her. It was from a story about her from Good Morning America. So naturally I was intrigued given the nature of our podcast, thinking about what this criticism was from people who maybe did not understand her situation and judging her for having maybe children out of wedlock. I don't know. I was very curious about what this criticism was, though obviously we're not in the business here of condoning people judging other people. That's just where my mind went because I've heard it so often, right? But I was actually quite wrong. And the criticism in this group was from people who did actually understand the situation and calling her a selfish mommy for having four children. The rationale was that having so many children was both bad for the children and the environment. Honestly, I was flabbergasted by these comments and I don't really want to address those head on because to be quite frank, there's no science supporting any of these claims. It's purely judgment and opinion. It's not based in uh, on any fact, but instead I wanted to talk about how to cope when people judge your parenting decisions. So this week I want to talk about the article, what to do when people judge your parenting. It's from Very Well Family, written by Jennifer White. So the first piece of advice from this article is ask yourself, did you request the advice? Before you prickle at a comment that sounds like criticism, consider, did I open this door by actually asking for the person's opinion? Or is this truly unsolicited advice? If the former, accept the fact that you invited the person to share their thoughts with you. All right. So based on, on that, what are your thoughts? Good or bad advice for this first one? Did you request the advice? Ask yourself, did you request the advice? I think good advice to ask if whether or not you requested this advice. I mean, I think that sometimes that gets construed, right? This is only on like the receiving end person, right. right? But sometimes people come to us and are like, oh, I'm so stressed out. I just got, I've got four kids and it's really busy. And then they say, well, let me tell you what you should do. And right. I think this advice should also go to the speaker, right? Did they just invite you in to kind of oh, yeah. help and reflect and be there for them? Or did they actually ask you for advice, right? So if you did ask for advice, I think it's important to reflect on that and not get mad at the person if you did ask for that advice. But if you didn't ask for that advice, I don't think that that should be another conversation. Like I invited you in not to tell me what to do, but to be supportive for me. And that also goes for the person giving the advice too. So good advice. Woods? I think it's good advice. I think it's an interesting place to start to assume that somebody got reactive about getting advice yeah. and then slowing the reader down to say, but really, did you ask for this? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting place to start. I don't think it's bad advice, but I also would say that while you're considering, did I ask for somebody's feedback? It's also reasonable to, even though you asked for it, close the door again. Once you right. realize, actually, I'm not quite in a place to hear this, or maybe this isn't who I should have necessarily connected with to have this conversation, feel free to close the door and say, you know what, actually, I super appreciate it. And I realize I just asked for your help. And also, 
I don't actually know that I'm quite ready for it. So I'm going to put a pause on this conversation and, and circle back right. around later. So even though you open the door for advice and it's good advice to be aware of that, it's your door. You can also close it right back again. That's yes. within your rights and your yep. permission to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So next is clearly vocalize what kind of support you need. It's tough when you ask for help and don't like the response you get, but try to avoid blaming someone for having an opinion when you didn't ask them for it. Instead, clarify what you need. Instead of asking friends or family members what they think, ask specifically for their support. You might say, I've decided to do this. I know you might not agree, but what I need from you is blank. Good or bad advice? Good advice, but I'm also going to say ugly advice. Ooh, can you define ugly advice for us? This this new category? I I also think, I'm just going to be honest here. Sarah, is this a way of Jacob reframing? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's fine. Come on. He's forcing the code. Yeah. Go on. Define it it for us. I'm going to call it ugly because it's not systemic, right? Again, they're saying, I really like this idea of like asking for the type of support you need, but Mm -hmm. we're not always in a place to know what we need. And hopefully those people who are close to us, who are friends and family members can also Mm. like clue in every once in a while and be like, oh yeah, this person's overwhelmed. They don't want to tell me what to do. They just need this support right now. Right. So I think it is good advice, but also it needs to go both directions. Right. If we only have this linear of like, I'm the stressed out parent with four kids and I have to then emotionally prepare you for what I need, even though I'm taking care of four other little kids. I I think that's a lot to ask. So good advice, but ugly because it's non-systemic. Okay, good advice, but ugly. What's oh, doesn't it just make it bad advice? I mean, I just really don't, I already am mad at this article that you're, that you're sharing with us. It's for the same reason I think Jacob's describing in terms of like way to just really put the onus on whoever yeah. needs help. And it reminds me of this article we talked about in Academic Deep Dive a few episodes ago about single moms trying to survive the pandemic and just utterly drowning and nobody making any kind of accommodations or allowances and our our structure not creating any policies to support families. And then, and then after all of this, if you're totally exhausted and you're totally drowning and you've really considered, did you ask for help? So then you better be prepared to receive it. Now you have to think about, did you frame it in the correct way to get right. back what you really need? I mean, good Lord, they're needing help and there is presumably another person on the side of this other side of this conversation who could just as easily always start with offering support no matter what. Right. Yeah. I agree. I think that the tone of this article, the the entire onus of the person feeling judged Mm -hmm. is to change their behavior when, you know, really it should be on the person who is doing the the judging here to change their behavior. Yeah. And setting boundaries is is always good, but this certainly it's not the responsibility of the person being judged to phrase things in a way so they're less judged, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I agree. There's that wrinkle of problematic through throughout mm. this. It's it's ugly. That, that's what you really want to say, that it's ugly advice. Bad just bad. I don't know, just bad, maybe too. <laughs> ugly bad? Ugly bad advice. So it seems like we're a little bit of a mixed bag here. There are some good things, you know, 
if you have the capacity to clarify with what you need, do it, go for it. But sometimes we just get so overwhelmed. It's, it's on the other person to provide support, to provide grace, to provide empathy and set that judgment aside as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, seek out people who are educated on the topic. You will find that different family and friends are great resources for different topics. For example, if you're suffering from low milk supply, turn to a friend who is a member of La Leche League rather than a relative who did not breastfeed. So seek out people who are educated on the topic, good or bad advice. Good advice. Also, again, we are just putting so much pressure on this parent who is breastfeeding, right? Like, sure, it's great to seek out people that know more than us. But also like, I would hope that, you know, if I see somebody struggling and I've had a similar experience, I would say, hey, I know this is really hard. If you ever need anything, I'm here to support you. Talk about those experiences. Like, let's talk about this, right? Like I, again, we're seeing this like, okay, I am going to take all of this additional work to go find somebody that can help me and not, and pick and choose who I talk to, right? Right. That is, I mean, that's smart, right? Like if you're in a normal situation where you're not like completely swamped, you're like, oh, I have a question about this. I'm going to go ask somebody who's had this experience or who is an expert in that topic. Good advice. But we're talking about somebody here who's probably, at least I'm assuming, in a little bit of distress, just being judged, just feeling isolated and alone. And in that moment, it's really hard to reach out. So it's on us as people who love these people to reach out connect, provide support. And, you know, if they need some ideas or some alternatives to give those as well. So right. Or help them find those experts as well. You know, I think if we're the person, a supportive person in, in this stressed out parent who's feeling very, very judged, I think it's also okay to remind them. They don't have to be the sole reminder of their own life. Where did this knowledge come from? Did it come from who's it, what's it down the road who just likes to spout opinions left, right, and center? Or did it come from someone who actually knows what they're talking about? Reminding people that you can ignore advice from people who have no idea what they're talking about and are just going around spouting opinions and being judgy for no reason. What? (laughs) I also have to say as a professional helper, most, most people are never looking for advice. They're mostly always looking for support and have the ability to find their own solutions. They're looking for love and understanding and to be heard and feel like they matter. And so I shouldn't need somebody educated on the topic to share that I'm struggling with low milk supply because I don't personally have anybody in my life who Mm. has worked with La Leche League should I have been struggling with low milk supply. That's not what I would have done. I would have needed to process how stressful that is and how scary that can be when you're not sure that you're adequately feeding your infant. And do they have anything that they've discovered works for them? And oh my God, it's so exhausting to be a new mom to a newborn. They're almost never asking for advice. And on top of that, I have friends and family that seek me out given that professional role all the time to debrief about what's going on with their children or in their marriage or with their in-laws, et cetera. When I am that close to those people, I have to be pretty honest about how challenging it is for me to come from a more objective kind of professional experience. I'm coming from somebody who, I'm somebody who loves them. And so educated on the topic or not, 
I'm still going to have the lens of wanting to offer you whatever kind of support you need from being a friend or a family member. So it's fine advice. I agree. It's just putting a lot of kind of a a giant checklist in front of what you're now describing as, in this example, an exhausted mom of a newborn to have to check off before you can ask for help. Right. So what are we saying? Is this good advice or bad advice? No, I think I it mean, fits in the ugly category, right? Like, oh I'm my gosh, little... this is not a category. <laughs> <laughs> Go Stop on, Jacob. Ugly happen. Stop trying to make ugly happen. Stop trying to make ugly happen. I I think it's bad advice. Okay, so bad advice from Woods. Ugly advice from Priest. I think it's good advice with a caveat, but primarily because it helps me filter through all of people's opinions that they have about parenting and it comes at you hard Yeah, and and knowing what to dismiss and what to listen to when you have the capacity and the mental energy to filter through advice, right? So there are times when this would be helpful in my opinion and times when it absolutely wouldn't be helpful because like you said, Woods, it's another checklist for someone to have when they just don't have the energy to go through a checklist. They just want that support. Ask yourself, am I reading between the lines? Sometimes it's easy to make the mistake of, sometimes it's easy to make the mistake of misinterpreting advice. We add meaning or emotion that was never intended by the giver. We replay the interaction in our mind and sometimes overanalyze what was really said. This is particularly true in our world of electronic conversations, Facebook statuses, tweets, texts, and emails. We are even more likely to read between the lines, filling in meaning that was never intended. So good or bad advice, ask yourself, am I reading between the lines? I think what the author is saying is like really a good advice, but just not in this context. Right. right? Yeah. Like, again, yeah. like, yeah, there's a Are lot Are you about of... to say this is ugly advice? No, because I got shamed out of <laughs> that anymore. category. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> I was trying to sell it really hard and you guys are like, no. No, no. See, I'm reading between the lines of the communication to infer that I've got to stop trying yeah. to make that work. Oh, there was Jacob, I don't know lines. if there were there were Very between direct. the lines. I'm pretty sure we were quite direct about that. But sure. But again, like, yeah, when you're having communication with somebody and you're like, oh, I don't really understand that. I'm texting them back and forth and I'm inferring all this stuff about their emotional state or what those words mean. Yeah, that can be problematic. And also like this poor person, this poor parent who is having to do all of this emotional labor for all of their support system. Yeah. Whether to decide whether they are good or bad or right or wrong. Right. Is just really sad to me. Right. It just shows this kind of it's almost like backhand ooh, backhanded good advice like you know okay i'm I'm with you right like it's like oh this is good advice but we're gonna veil this as you need to take more personal responsibility because your support system is shitty if we're really in the business of forming connections and relationships that matter this should be, we should be sensitive to those people around us who are stressed out and we should want to, when we have the capacity to reach out and love them and support them and not require them to filter everything we say through this lens of, did they mean this? Did they not mean this? Right. That could be exhausting. So I'm going to say like, just the way it's written, I think Sarah, makes me frustrated too, because it's like, these are good things to use, but not in this context. Yeah. So bad advice or, Good backhanded advice. Okay. 
it's going to go with bad advice. Woods, good or bad advice? I think it's good advice. I think, <laughs> I think it is. My streak uh, has ended. I was really trying to make it two podcasts in a row. I think it is never bad advice to say that when you're getting any kind of response from anybody you're in a relationship with, if you're having an emotional reaction to it, or you're not quite sure what it means to take a, to take a beat and think about, am I understanding this the way it's intended? And should I ask what they mean? This happens in couples all the time. And there can be plenty of judging about parenting that happens within romantic relationships. So I think there is, I'm not sure it's ever going to do harm to a relationship for you to be in a position of thinking about, am I, am I reading too much into this? Do I understand what they mean? And now should I ask? So good advice from Woods, bad advice from Jacob. Well, now I, I want to change my mind because of no, how don't. Woods said it. <laughs> no, I uh, I agree and support both both of your stances. I'm actually going to take a, a, a different approach and bring a systemic lens to this because I think that, you know, if a text comes in that feels judgy, there's probably a history, a pattern of interaction there where maybe you feel judged by that person. And I think sometimes in my own personal experience, the same text, the same wording can feel one way from one person and one way from another person. So if you are reading between the lines, to be frank, it might be justified. It might, you might have a pattern with that friend or that family member in the past of them judging you. So being mindful of that, that reading between the lines, while it might be problematic, there might be a rational reason why you're doing that. It might be a patterned history of that person not being supportive and not being there for you. So taking the, the both and, I think it could be good advice always, but also recognize that systemic pattern that it might be true. They might be judging you and that's, that's okay. And then going to what Woods said is ask the question then, if you feel safe in that environment to ask the question, if you don't feel safe, that might be a boundary you need to draw that you're not going to solicit advice from this person or listen to advice from this person until maybe emotionally, cognitively, sleep deprivation wise, you're in a place where you can have that conversation. Okay, last but not least, ask yourself, what would your pediatrician say? Whether it's any of the numerous myths about parenting or how soon you can turn your baby face forward in a car seat, there are going to be times when people offer you suggestions that your pediatrician would advise against. So all of this advice that will be spewing from you, and this is not just infants, this is like throughout being a parent, ask yourself what would an expert say or your pediatrician or whoever you define as an expert in your life would say. Jacob, good or bad advice? I think it's good advice to ask a pediatrician. I don't know if it's good advice to ask myself, what would my pediatrician say? Because I don't think I always <laughs> know, right? Like oh, yeah. the pediatrician yeah. is the expert. And if I have a question, maybe that's where I should, you know, ask like, oh, the ask the pediatrician as opposed to like, hmm, I think my pediatrician w would say. WWMP, what would my pediatrician say? <laughs> Please, let's make those bracelets. 
you know, like, I think that people have a level of expertise for a reason. And sometimes we should just ask them, right? If it's really about like a safety issue, like a car seat, as you were saying, right? Go to what the recommended guidelines are. And that can be just as simple as shooting a message to your pediatrician and saying, hey, when is an appropriate age for me to turn around the car seat? When is, me, when is an appropriate time to do this? What is the best evidence about this? Because, you know, they have that specific training. So I worry, and that's why I say it's bad advice to be like, hmm, you know, I feel like my Let me speculate. What right? That becomes, you know, like kind of, I can infer my own opinions onto what the pediatrician would say. I think the pediatrician would say, it's fine to, you know, just like let my kids sit on my lap while we're driving. We're not going very far, right? And I think that's a bad idea. So talking, talking to your pediatrician is a good idea. Inferring what your pediatrician might say is a bad idea. So bad advice. Bad advice, but only because of the, the wording. You, you not, not, don't just think, ask. Yeah. Woods? I think it's good advice from the perspective of helping to check for yourself, like weird or problematic or questionable advice that comes from, you know, well-meaning family members who either maybe don't really know or have been out of the game for a long time. I had an aunt when I had my first child tell me that if she gets constipated, just give her a couple of bites of jalapeno. Yeah, right. So that kind of thing. Yeah. That <laughs> is anecdotal at best. <laughs> Although you're hoping maybe she didn't feed your cousins jalapenos <laughs> as infants. It is maybe helpful to check that kind of stuff. Like, oh, okay, well, that is their own experience. And maybe there's somebody that I should check in with that I have access to that's an expert. I would say also pediatricians are also human people and they're also subject to, mm. you know, their own kind of bias and their their own standing in terms of where they are in reading the current literature on different on different areas. And so I think it is helpful to kind of take that information from your physicians also as a conversation and not as not as dictum, not as kind of gospel that I can't question or can't engage with. I get to ask my physician questions too when they give me advice, help me understand what you, what the evidence says, where this has changed these recommendations, why this is helpful for my specific child or something you tell all parents, that th that should also always be a conversation as well. So in short, or in long, I think it's fair to say, do not judge other people. Come to people with support, especially if you know they're under stress, with grace, with love, and don't put the onus on putting all of the boundaries, all of the decisions on the parent who is currently super stressed out, I think would be the take home message for this advice section. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us email us or get at us on one of the social medias about relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. 